Well, if you guys have your Bibles with you this morning, and I hope you do, then please turn in them to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as we wrap up a series of messages that we started two weeks ago and that we've been calling God's Word in the Pursuit of Holiness, and in which we've been talking about, first of all, why it is that every single one of us as believers in Jesus, let me pause and just say that's a hugely loaded phrase, why it is that every one of us who have been made clean in Jesus, who have been made new in Jesus, who have been brought literally from death to life in Jesus, who have been taken out of darkness and transferred into light, how? By our own efforts? Oh, no, no. By Jesus. Forgiven in Jesus, given all of the blessings in the heavenly realms in Jesus, made co-inheritors with Christ of, get this, everything in Jesus. Why it is that you and I, as that kind of a person and as that kind of a people, need to get up every single day and say, okay, God, how do I live today a life that is more radically obedient to you than I did yesterday. And hey, you know what? If you give me tomorrow, I'm looking for more obedience tomorrow than today. And then if you give me the next day, I'm looking to be even more radically obedient to you the next day than I will be tomorrow. And on and on and on for as many days as you give me. Lord, why, why do I need to do that? That's question number one. And question number two is, okay, how do I do that? And particularly by whose power do I do that? And then what about all these basic fundamental practices and disciplines of the Christian faith like Bible study and prayer and, and plugging into a community group and gathering for worship and finding my place in service? I mean, where does all that stuff fit in? That's what we're talking about in the series. And we started week one with the why question. Why do we need to do that? And we saw that the answer to that is simply as an act of worship in response to the gospel. The reason that you and I really and truly ought to get up out of bed every day and be like jacked, excited to say to God, hey, you know what? Today, my goal, pursue a life of even more radical obedience to you than I did yesterday, is as an act of worship in response to the gospel, meaning in response to all that God has already given us in Christ. And what has He given us in Christ? He's given us His all. He's given us His everything. And the analogy that we've been using every single week to kind of help us sort of picture this and work through it is that of a giant metaphorical bag. You know, I said that every week I've said, okay, it's kind of like you come to faith in Christ and together with your salvation and everything else that God gives to you in Christ, He gives you also for His glory and in grace, a big, huge, giant metaphorical bag. And then He says, all right, here's the deal. Every day you get up and you put more in it. So put your husband in it. Put your wife in it. Put each one of your kids in it. Individually put them in it. Their health, their safety, all of your hopes, dreams, and aspirations for them. In there, in there, in there. If you've got grandkids, put them in there. Put your own health, your own safety, your own security, everything you own, everything you have, everything you are, your reputation, the whole shooting match each day in the bag. And then you get in the bag yourself just in case you've left anything out, and you pull it up over your head and you tie it in a big knot, you put a killer bow on the top because, I don't know, why not? And so then you grab it about thigh high and you hop it on over every morning and you lay it at the feet of Jesus and you do it with enthusiasm. Like, joyfully, it is my thrill to do this, not just my duty or obligation. It is that, but, but no, 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 I'm excited about this. I'm giving it all to you again today, God, and today again... I want to stand in amazement and see what you'll do with it. Because there is a greater wisdom by which to live. There's a greater plan out there than mine. And there is a greater joy and satisfaction and significance in what He wants to do with it than what we would otherwise 
want to do with it. And so the process really is a getting up every day and, and saying, okay, I'm putting it all in. And, you know, and it's a, it's a, also it's a dealing with God with the fact that maybe you haven't put it all in too. As you communicate with Him, as you grow in faith in Him, as we'll be talking about today, as you come to know Him better and come to know yourself better in light of who He is, and you start to see that there are some subtleties to this. It's not just, oh, now I need to put in my gifts and talents and abilities. I mean, that's kind of obvious. Whether we do it might not be so clear to us, but we know we're supposed to. But there are all these little subtleties of the faith, too. These finer things. Oh, Lord, I I see that. I thought I had it all in there yesterday, but you also want me to put my attitude about this person in there? Okay. And that's my addition for today. Or maybe it's the way that I tend to respond to and speak about, or maybe it's the way even that I sing. I don't like that song, so I'm not going to sing. Oh, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. It's not about me. It's about you, so I'm going to put that in there. There are subtleties. There's a growing And don't worry, the bag he gives you is big enough to contain it all. He knows how much it all is. You move through life and each day you say, okay, Lord, I I put a lot of it in there anyway. And you add, and you add, and you add, and you don't take out. You don't take out. Now, why do you do it? As an act of worship in response to the gospel. So that was week one, and then last week we got together and we started talking about the how question. You know, I mean, how do we do this? Because here's the deal. I can't do this by my power. You can't do this by your power. I mean, if we have learned anything in the series, if you've been kind of hanging in with us, coming along for the journey, it is that we are all worse off than we thought, okay? We are a lot less powerful than we ever imagined. Indeed, we have no power at all to do anything good in the eyes of God. We have great power to do good things in the eyes of our parents, okay? Mom loves the good things you do. We have great power to do good things in the eyes of each other, but the reality of life and of our hearts really is in light of the blazing holiness of God, I never do anything that is undefiled. There is never anything that I do, even the most selfless thing I do, there's a little selfishness in. I'm powerless, but He's powerful. We learned last week that we get up every day and we start putting more in the bag every day and hopping it over, and we do it with a happy smile because we're like excited to do it, okay? We gain the power to do that through the power of Jesus Christ who lives within us by His Holy Spirit, who spoke the worlds into being, who is not lacking in power. He's not wringing His hands and going, oh my goodness, I don't have enough power to help Him to surrender that. And then to take that and do great things with it. It's the power of Jesus who lives within us that is accessed by us through faith. That was last week. So that kind of leaves one at least big question left, which is, okay, well, how do I access the power of Jesus through faith? I mean, how do I grow my faith? How do I grow in that relationship with Him? How do I come to know Him better and come to know myself better and understand who He is better and understand who I am better and understand His wisdom and His plan and all of these things better? And that's where the basic and fundamental practices and disciplines of the Christian faith come in. God in grace has said, hey, you want to grow in your relationship with me? You want to see my power more clearly expressed, more powerfully expressed in and through your life? I have given you means by which the Spirit of Jesus who lives within you will grow that faith, will manifest that power. Things like prayer, things like study of Scripture, things like gathering and plugging in and serving. And so I want to talk about those things, but 
I want to do it a little bit differently. I want to look at those particular kinds of activities within the context of a discussion of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 about how to do battle against temptation in our lives, about the threat of it and about the promise of God that we can cling to in the midst of it. Because I think coming at it from that perspective, you'll sort of see how it all fits together and works. All right? So that's my plan. So anyway, I want to look at 1 Corinthians 10 together. And beginning in verse 1, I want you to see that Paul is making a connection. And here's who he's connecting. He's connecting you and I and everybody who lives on our side of the cross after the cross of Jesus Christ to a very specific group of people, the Israelites of old, whose stories are contained in the Old Testament and who lived before the cross of Christ. And the reason that he's trying to connect the two of us up here is because he wants us to realize that we're actually one, that we're one people, one faith, one Savior, one cross, one God. And the idea here is he wants us to be able to to identify with them and to identify with them that we might then be enabled to learn from their example. And what a powerful example they give us, as you'll see today, of the perils of temptation and of the answers that God provides. So Paul says this, starting out just the first part of verse 1. He says, for I want you to know brothers. Now, hang on. Who are the brothers? Who is he talking to? Who is he writing to? He's writing primarily to Gentile, and that's significant, believers in Jesus who at that time lived in Corinth and who, like Paul, like you, like me, live after the cross. So he's saying, I want you, Gentiles who are believers in Jesus and who live after the cross, to know something, brothers. And here it is. It is that our fathers. Whoa, don't go any further. Who are they? Well, again, they're the Israelites of old that we read about in the Old Testament. He's saying, that's our fathers in our faith. That's who they are. And so in saying that to us who live after the cross, that these folks that we read about in the Old Testament are our fathers in the face, well, those those are the guys that live before the cross. What is he saying about the people of God? He's saying we're not two different groups, that we're one group. He is saying that the people of God on both sides of the cross, before and after, are made into, they become the people of God, not by virtue of that ethnicity, but by virtue of a common faith in a common Savior and in what He did on a common cross, that those who lived before the cross look forward to Christ and His cross in faith, and we today look backward upon it. One group. You get the idea? And He wants us to see that we're one group because He really wants us to identify with them and to learn from their example in regards to the issue of temptation. So He keeps building these connections. He says, for I want you, Gentile believers who live after the cross, to know brothers, okay, that our Jewish fathers in the faith who lived before the cross were all, don't miss this, under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were what? Because it's a key word, all were baptized. He's saying, wow, you know, you guys are baptized on this side of the cross, right? He's saying, well, those guys experienced a baptism of sorts as well. And he's calling to mind for us Old Testament stories about our fathers in the faith that honestly... We all ought to know, and where would we learn all these stories together with all of their lessons that strengthen and buttress our faith and teach us all about God and us and life and power and it's in His Word, isn't it? 
there's a sense in which he's assuming a certain understanding of the Old Testament in coming to us with these examples. He says, I want you guys to know, brothers, that our Jewish fathers in the faith who lived before the cross were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Now, what is that a reference to? It's a reference to that story in the Old Testament where the Israelites have left Egypt and they are stuck Pinned in, and here comes Pharaoh's army. So it's Pharaoh's army coming from this side, and it's the Red Sea on that side. And Moses raises his staff, and God parts the waters of judgment. I say waters of judgment, why? Because the Israelites passed through it, and the armies of Pharaoh followed, and the waters closed upon them in judgment. They pass through the waters, and someone else experiences judgment. Sound familiar? We pass through the waters of baptism, signifying the cleansing that comes to each one of us as a result of the reality that Jesus Christ passed through God's judgment. So he's calling to mind our experiences on this side of the cross and their experiences on that side of the cross, and he's making connections for us. I want you guys who live after the cross to know, brothers, that our Jewish fathers in the faith who lived before the cross were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And not only that, but in eating the manna in the wilderness, for that's the next story that he is by implication recalling for us, that heavenly bread that miraculously appeared. Well, in eating that, they all ate the same spiritual food. Jesus comes into the world. And in describing himself, he uses the Old Testament to do it time and again, time and again, time and again. Calls up all of these images, and one of the images is bread. He says, I am the bread who came from heaven. In instituting the Lord's Supper, he takes the Passover meal, that's the meal of these Old Testament fathers, and he takes those same elements by which they celebrated and remembered every year their deliverance from Egypt. And he says, okay, let's take the bread, for example. The bread... Let me tell you what it really is. It is my body broken for you. He's making connections between us and them, and he's saying, you know, hey, in eating heavenly bread, they partook of a spiritual food that we partake of. When we partake of the heavenly bread that is Christ in communion, and not only that, but they all drank the same spiritual drink. They drank water from a rock, miraculously, he says, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was who? Jesus. The rock was Christ. The same one whose blood we drink representatively as we partake of communion together. So Paul is connecting us to our forefathers in the faith, and he's connecting us story by story, calling to mind the entirety of their stories that we might identify with them, and then learn from their example. He wants us to be thinking about their experiences. He wants us to think about their deliverance from Egypt, which represented what to them? Oppression, slavery, and death, just like sin does to us. Same thing. He wants us to remember the manner in which they were delivered, and how were they delivered? By the blood of the Passover lamb. They took the innocent spotless lamb, they shed his blood, the dying of the innocent in behalf of the guilty, and they painted their doorposts and lintels, you'll recall, and judgment of God passed over those who were covered by the blood and visited those who were not. What's the gospel? Jesus bursts upon the scene, and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and to come to Him in faith is to be covered by His blood and to be passed over by the judgment of God. Very similar 
He wants you to call to mind their deliverer, this man Moses, whose stories we read all about in the Old Testament and whose life, life all over the place points to the Lord Christ. Moses was born a Jewish slave in Egypt. Jesus was born a Jewish slave in Palestine. About the time of the birth of Moses, Pharaoh, in fear for his kingdom, issued an edict that said, what, all the male Israelite children two years of age and under must be killed. Well, the time of the birth of Jesus, Herod, king of Palestine, in fear for his kingdom, issued an edict that said all the male Israelite children under the age of two in the city of Bethlehem must be killed. Plan A for Pharaoh was a plan of deception. He wanted to use the Hebrew midwives, these people who helped deliver the babies, and he said, look, here's the deal. If it's a boy, snuff him out. If it's a girl, no problem. And what do the Hebrew midwives do? To their credit, they disobeyed the king. They feared God more than the king. What was Herod's plan? The Magi come and he says, okay, here's the deal. You go find the so-called one-born king of the Jews, and then when you find him, come let me know so I can come worship him with my sword. He just left the with my sword part off. But that was the deal. But they feared God more than the king, didn't they? And they never returned to tell him where he was. Striking. Moses fled from Egypt in fear of Pharaoh. Jesus fled to Egypt with his parents in fear of Herod. Moses returned to Egypt after he was told that all who seek your life are dead. Jesus' parents got the same message. That's when they returned to Palestine. They both returned to deliver their people from oppression, slavery, and death, one from Pharaoh, one from sin. They both come doing miracles as evidence of the fact that God has indeed sent them. Moses fasted 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain of God. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Moses brought the people of God, the Word of God, from the mountain of God in the Ten Commandments. Jesus brought the people of God, the Word of God, in His sermon on the what? On the mount. The most famous sermon ever delivered. And look, that's about half of the connections. Just between Moses and Christ. That I alone see. I'm sure there's a ton I don't. Paul is coming to you and me, and he's coming to us who live after the cross, and he's saying, look, here's the deal. I am building a case for a connectedness between you and these people that you read about in the Old Testament. And what I want you to understand is they are your fathers, okay? And I want you to understand this because I want you to identify with them and be enabled thereby to learn from their example because they have something to teach us about temptation and sin, and it is profound. And what is it? He says in verse 5, nevertheless, and what he means by that is, even though these people are just like you, he's saying, what happened to them? With most of them, that's an understatement. With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And if you know the story, you're almost insulted by that little phrase, most of them. I'm sure they would have been. It's like, really, most of them? How about all but two? I mean, that's still most, but real, you know, like, wow, all but two. The generation of Israelites who left Egypt was probably about 1.2 million people. Of 1.2 million people, From that generation, two made it into the promised land. Just two. And one of them was not Moses. Not even he made it. Over the course of 40 years, 1.2 million people who had given in to temptation and bore the consequences of their sin, 
as a result, died in the wilderness. You got to do the math on that. It's staggering. That's 86 people a day. That's three to four people every hour, 24 hours a day for 40 straight years. Now, what kind of a camp do you think that was to live in? Imagine that. I mean, it's bad enough to have to wander around in the wilderness in and of itself, isn't it? But what kind of a camp was that? Was there anywhere that you could go in that camp where somebody wasn't in mourning? And not just somebody, but like whole families of people. Anywhere? I'm going to go with no. How about this? Was there anywhere that you could go in that camp where somebody wasn't being carried out to be buried? Anywhere? I don't think so. Was there anywhere in the camp of Israel where there wasn't multiple funerals going on all over the place, all at the same time? It could not have been otherwise. There was nowhere in the camp of Israel that you could go where you did not see the stain and smell the stink of death, which is no different than saying, smell the stain and see the stink, or see the stain, we'll try that again, and smell the stink of sin. It's a pretty shocking thought. Paul's not trying to be subtle. He's not like beating around the bush about the, you know, sin. He's not saying, oh, it's not that big of a deal. No, he's saying it's a, it's a big deal. It's a really, really big deal. The smell of sin is the smell of death, which is exactly what Paul is trying to get us to see. I mean, all over the Bible, the Bible attaches those two things together. And you know what? Same is true in my life and yours. Isn't it? I mean, sin always results in death, at least eventually. It, may, you know, it like catches us in the end, but sometimes it's pretty immediate too. It's not always a physical death. Sin brings all kinds of death. Death of trust. You ever caused that one? Everybody's caused that one. Death of conscience. It's just burned into non-existence at some point, isn't it? Death of marriage, death of relationship, death of intimacy, death of innocence. Let's not run past that one too fast. It's one we sell for almost nothing. And it matters. Death of hope, death of health, death of finances, death of dreams and ambitions and vision. The smell of sin is the smell of death. And Paul is trying to confront us with that vividly that our lives, instead of being marked by the smell of death, can be marked by the fragrance of life. For we serve a Savior who brings life out of death. And so to that end, he flatly tells us in verse 6, he says, Now these things took place in the lives of these guys, our forefathers, as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did, but that instead its spell can be broken in our lives and we might desire to produce instead the fragrance of life. And so to further make the point, like as if that's not all enough, he gives us a highlight reel of Israel's time in the wilderness in verses 7 through 10. I'm just going to read it to you quickly. He says, do not be idolaters as some of their were, them were. You hear the language of example. As it is written, he says, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And then he goes on, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Bad day, I think. We must not put Christ to the test. You know, like we all do with our parents. How far can I push it before there's a consequence? He's like, whoa, hey, don't do that with God because, well, some of them did and they were destroyed by serpents. 
Nor grumble, he says, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. And his point is not merely to say, look, don't be idolaters, don't be sexually immoral, don't put God to the test, and don't be a grumbler, but the rest of it is probably okay. He's just taking those up as examples and saying, wow, look at this. Don't do this. There are a variety of different ways that we can learn things in life. One of them is by our own experience. And the other is from the experience of other people. He's holding their experience in front of us and he's saying, hey, learn from them and stop screwing around with sin. Stop pretending like you're going to be the only person on the planet for whom sin does not bring some kind of death. He's saying, guys, it did for them. They're just like you and it will for me as well. And it will for you guys. And so he says again in verse 11, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And then he adds, Therefore, let most people know. Let anyone, let all people, he's saying, who think or who thinks that he stands, who thinks that he's going to be the exception, let him take heed to their stories, lest he like them is the idea fall. And then he gives us the last verse that I want to look at, and it's verse 13. And he says this, he says, no temptation has overtaken you, and it means literally has seized you. It's almost language of violence. And I think that, you know, I mean, if we're just going to be honest, we've all sort of experienced that. It's like we're cruising down the road of life and we get pulled over by the squad car of temptation. You know, and temptation doesn't come and ask you to roll the window down and want to check your driver's license. Temptation opens the door and forcibly grabs you, throws you up onto the hood of the car, puts your hands and handcuffs behind your back, drags you back to its own car, opens the door, throws you violently into the back, shuts the door, and drives you away. That's what it feels like at times. He says, no temptation that has never happened to you, he says, that is not common to man. And that is a very helpful thought. It's helpful, I'll tell you, because what it says to you is that you are not alone in whatever sin it is that you're stuck in. You're just not. You may feel like it. You may think you are. But it's not the case. You know, one of the greatest strategies, I think, of our enemy, the devil, is he comes along and he tries to isolate us in our sin. Now, just think about that from the perspective of a believer for a second, because one of the greatest analogies of the church, of the body, that's the analogy, by the way, of Christ, is that we are, in fact, a body, like a literal human body, full of all these different parts of which every one of us is a part. What happens when you cut a part off of your body? Does it kind of run off on its own and thrive? It dies. It suffers, and the body suffers, and yet Satan loves to just kind of come along and say, hey, you know, let me just grab hold of that sin that you're like in the car driving down the road, like the squad car of sin that you're in and trapped in. He wants to tell you you're the only one who's stuck there. You're the only one who's ever had this experience. Or maybe, okay, maybe you're not the only one, but if you ever told these people here today what it is that you're involved in right now, that'd be the end of it for you. Can you imagine what they would think of you? And I'll tell you what they would think of you if they're thinking biblically. 
they would think, wow, you're a really big fat sinner. And pull up a chair and welcome to the group. Because everyone else here is as well. It's the glory of Christ. It's why we need Him. We're all broken and we cannot fix ourselves. We're all filthy and we cannot cleanse ourselves. And we're powerless to change it. No temptation has overtaken or seized you that is not common to man. See, there's another gesture towards community in that too. That little phrase, common to man, means literally human or man-like. Do you know what that means? He's saying there is not a sin that exists in the planet that anyone out there anywhere ever commits, including you, that is not itself sown into the very fabric of the humanity in which every human being partakes. Or to put it more bluntly, there is no sin anywhere on the planet that under just the right set of circumstances, any one of us is not capable of committing. That is a radically humbling thought. And that is a gesture toward community as well. See, that should strip us down to who we in fact are, members of a human race that is broken, and it should grant to each one of us the ability to be sympathetic and compassionate toward our fellow broken human being. Who knows what pit you might have been driven into under the same circumstances is the idea. He says, don't ever look at that and think, nah, that could never be me. So Paul says, no temptation has overtaken or seized you. That is not common to man. So quit dealing with this yourself and wake up and recognize that God has given you people to help you with it. And then he goes on and he tells us something about the character of God. He says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Did you hear that? Your ability in who? In Jesus the one who lives within you by His Spirit, who spoke the worlds into being, who's not concerned about not having enough power to help. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability as that kind of a person. But with the temptation, He will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, bear up under it, resist it, is kind of the idea. And it's a military metaphor. It's sort of the image of being surrounded by one's enemies and realizing I'm done. But then all of a sudden having a little opening in the enemy lines. And it's not going to stay open forever, guys. It's not one of those deals where you go, oh, well, that's cool, you know, and that'll be available to me in a month. It's one of those deals where you go, good grief, there's my out. And with everything you've got, you run. You make your break for it. The Lord says, look for it. It's there. But how do you know that God is faithful? Or for that matter, how do you know anything else about the Lord? How do you know that He is good? How do you know that He is trustworthy? How do you know that He is wise and that His wisdom exceeds your wisdom? How do you know what His wisdom is? How do you know that, well, I mean, He has laid out for us a path of life and a path of death. And He's told us about the fragrance and the destination of each. And they're different. Where do you learn that? Where do you come across these promises of the Lord? Promises that we, in faith, are to grab hold of and by which, sometimes just hanging on by our fingernails, we're to live. Where, where are they found? Where do you go to find a purposeful community of people 
who understand that they're all big fat sinners and who aren't shocked when they find out that you are too. Who have a similar vision for life. Who believe in a similar kind of full life worship. Who recognize sinners saved by grace here and Christ has purchased them and you and me with His blood. He owns us and that's a good thing. And who are there for you to provide counsel and encouragement prayer support, sometimes to correct you, occasionally to take you to a verse or some other promise, maybe like this one, and to say, um, man, let me just, let's go back to this for a minute, and let me remind you of something, who call you up when you drop out, who chase you down when you don't answer your phone, because you're in that squad car heading the other way. Where do you get that? What is it in your life that pulls you out of life in this world, which is all-consuming? It's like a vortex that sucks us in. And regularly, with a rhythm, if you will, takes you and places you at the feet of the cross of the Savior and reminds you all over again, week by week by week by week, what life is really all about and who life is really all about. And where do you find your sweet spot in life? You know, I mean, like maybe you're a realtor, okay? And maybe, I don't know, God has made you to do that, and that's cool. But there is a sweet spot for us. A find-your-thing-do-your-thing kind of a deal where you discover how it is that God has resourced, equipped you, enabled you, experienced you for this season of your life to build a kingdom that will never, ever die. That's significance. That's a monument that continues. And the answer is, the basic, fundamental practices and disciplines of the Christian faith. Guys, God has given us those things by which to grow in our relationship with Jesus, come to know Him and us and life, His wisdom, His paths, His promises, His people, to free and liberate us to actually have authentic community with one another because we don't have to be posers. And He calls us each week to worship. And He says, look, i got a mission for you. And I've gifted you in kind of a unique way to get involved in it and find significance. The power that we need to wake up every day and to pursue this life that is marked less and less by the fragrance of death and more and more by the fragrance of life is the power of Christ who lives within us, accessed by a faith that is built and deepened day by day by day through the basic disciplines and practices of the Christian faith. Jesus is found in prayer. Jesus is found in His Word. Jesus is found in worship. Jesus is found in community with His people. And Jesus is found when you go on His mission. And in finding Him, you find what you need to pursue holiness. Does that make sense? All right. So get a study Bible. I know I'm a broken record. Some of you are getting sick of it. I know. It's all right. Seriously. Pray. Read it. Make this a part of your life that's, you know, like non-negotiable, not like eh, every once in a while if I can fit it in and I'm not doing something else. If it's raining, okay, now we'll come. Or if it's raining, I'll still come. Because it kind of goes both ways, doesn't it? You need this for your soul, and the Lord deserves it. 
plug into a community group. Hey, guess what? They start next week. How timely. And figure out your sweet spot for you have one. For Jesus is found in those things. All right, well, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to show you guys a video from a sweet spot, from a serve opportunity that we sent our students uh, on uh, two months ago back in June. Uh, We sent uh, 27 folks, four leaders, 23 students to Nairobi, Kenya. And um, this video records a very small, tiny snippet of their experiences there, but I think you'll catch a glimpse of their heart. And I think you'll catch a glimpse as you listen, as Carter speaks afterwards, not just to what God did through them, though He did great things through them, but to what God did in them. Where do you grow? Well, in part, you grow through serving. So listen to that. All right, Father, we thank You for Your glory. We thank You that there is one worthy of our lives. We thank You that though we approach You covered with the smell of death, that You are glorious and powerful enough in Your Son to take that stink and all of our sin away and to replace it with the fragrance of life. We thank You, Lord, that we can be made clean in Him, that forgiveness is found in Him, that life is lived and found in Him. And God, I pray that more than anything, you will lead us to Him, and not just once, but every single day. Awaken our hearts and lives to the threat of sin, to the reality of your glory, to the honor of offering all to you, not just some. And Lord, to the goodness that you have given to us through the simple practices and disciplines that we know of as prayer and the study of Your Word, gathering together for worship, plugging into purposeful Christian community and serving in a way that takes Your gospel and both in mercy and directly in message expresses who You are and all that You offer to anyone who is willing to come to You in faith in Christ. We pray that You would do these things for Your glory and that we would know Your favor. In Jesus' name, amen.